Luke 18. The past couple of weeks, we've been looking at this, um, two things. We've been looking at the arrival of the king and the arrival of the kingdom. You have that slide, Josh, the arrival of the king and the arrival of the kingdom. And we said two weeks ago, there's a first arrival and a second arrival. The second arrival is unexpected. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to be unmistakable, like lightning in the sky. And what Jesus says to us is just be ready. There's a tendency, the temptation is for us to be lulled into sleep, business as usual. The examples that Jesus gives are like in the days of Noah. Everybody's just doing their thing, and then all of a sudden there's a flood. Or Sodom and Gomorrah, everybody's doing their thing, and all of a sudden there's fire and brimstone falling from heaven. And so what he says is, Jesus will come back, but you're not going to know when. You can't predict it, but you need to be ready for his return, for this second arrival of the king. Last week we looked at the first arrival of the king and his kingdom, and that was that's that's Christmas 2,000 years ago, the first Christmas, Jesus comes and he, as the king, he brings his authority. That's his kingdom, his rule and his reign. And what he says is you can enter in right now. And we said the temptation for us when it comes to entering into the kingdom is to say, well, what do I have to offer? What do I have that I can bring to the table? We looked at a Pharisee who was rich in good deeds and the rich young ruler who was just rich and said there's a temptation that we all have because anytime somebody's inviting us into anything, we kind of want to go, well, it, what, what do I have to offer? What do I have to commend myself to you? And with Jesus, he said, that's not it at all. Your posture is one of humility, recognizing your need for, for me, recognizing your need for Jesus. That's what he's looking for. He's not looking for people who can bring something to the table. He's looking for people who recognize they've got nothing to offer and say, have mercy on me. And so that's, that's the equation for us when it comes to entering to the kingdom. Uh, humility is the key. So today we're going to look at Jesus is almost to Jerusalem. He makes one final stop in Jericho. And so we're going to look at his visit to Jericho today. But before we do that, before Jesus gets to Jericho, he pulls the 12 disciples aside and he wants to remind them of something he shared with them before, what they're going to expect or what they're going to encounter, excuse me, when they enter Jerusalem. So this is Luke 18, verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Before we jump back into this, do we have that video? Yep. All right. I want y'all to just follow the instructions on the screen, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap back up in a second. Business illusion. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it, 
But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. And that's the monkey business illusion. Learn more about this illusion and the original gorilla experiment at the Invisible Who got it? Sixteen. Who had it? Good. Gorilla. Person leaving the game. Ah,、oh, that's pretty good. Curtain changing colors. That's pretty good. Y'all are a little bit.、Um, Y'all are more on the ball than the nine o'clock. But it is later. So maybe that's what we'll chalk it up to. Here's what I think's happening. Jesus tells at least the third time. He says to the disciples, "Here's what's going to happen." And this time, it's it's point by point by point. Here's exactly what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be betrayed and insulted and spit on and mocked, and I'm going to be crucified, and then I'm going to rise again. And on this side of Easter, we look at that and go, "How do you how do you not get that? How can you not understand?" And this is at least the third time. It's the third public time that we see that he's done this. In the Luke's commentary, is they don't get it. Obviously, they're smart enough to understand the words; they can define the terms, but they don't get it. They don't understand what's happening. I think what can happen for all of us: we all wear glasses of some sort. That's just that's what we do. You can't not. Everybody has a perspective, and over time, that focus is what we'll call it. Looking through those glasses, it can be very helpful. It can help you see things. You are able to count passes even with all of that distraction. But what also that focus over time can also lead to tunnel vision, which can cause us to miss things that are important. I think that's what was happened to the disciples. They had this very、uh, clear understanding of the king and of the kingdom. And when Jesus even was saying, "I'm going to die," it's, it's like he was speaking Chinese. They could not grasp. That the triumphal Messiah was also a suffering servant. Their glasses did not allow them to see that, and we can see that throughout Jesus's ministry. Sometimes we get frustrated. Why was Jesus so oblique in his communication? Why did he use parables? He says this is why he uses parables. Though seeing they don't see, though hearing they don't un- hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. This people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. And I would heal them. Don't hear that as criticism. Don't hear that as Jesus going, "I'm going to stick it to you." What he's saying is, y'all are so hard-headed. You have you're so committed to your idea of the king and the kingdom. I can't even talk. It's like I'm banging my head against a wall. So rather than doing that, I'm going to package truth in this other form. Rather than saying the kingdom of God is, I'm going to say the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, and maybe you'll maybe you'll hear it that way. Maybe if I say the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price, it'll allow me to redefine this term for you. And that's why he packaged everything in parables. He's trying to do an end run around their expectations and their preconceived ideas. He's trying to say, take your glasses off so you can actually see what's going on. You're hearing with your ears. You're not hearing with your heart. God did not 
uh, keep the disciples, I don't think, from understanding the truth. I think what you see is they repeatedly missed it. And so at some point, God says, well, okay. Well, if that's the way you're going, then I'm going to just, then that's the way we're going. And it's going to require this pretty tragic event, this cataclysmic crucifixion in order to shake you enough to say, oh, now we understand. It would have been easier on the front end, but it's, it, it, it works. God's able to get them there. And the same thing happens to us. All of us are wearing spiritual glasses. It's January. I want to encourage you to do something twice a year. You don't need to do this every day or every week, but twice a year. I want to encourage you to hit a reset button. Just step back, do two things. One, God, am I developing tunnel vision? Am I pigeonholing you? Am I saying you can only work today the way you worked yesterday? Am I missing some key elements of either your character or your activity? The answer is, of course, but just stepping back and saying, all right, God, show me. I'm giving you a chance. Again, you don't need to pray this prayer every week, but I would say absolutely pray it a couple of times a year. January is a great time. Just hit reset. When school's out again, hit reset. God, show me. Where am I developing tunnel vision? How am I boxing you in, not giving you freedom? Think about the infinite creativity of God. There's no way we can ever grasp all of that. And our tendency is to reduce him to something we can fit in our pocket. And I just want to say, come on, let's, God, show me where am I pigeonholing you. Second thing, some of y'all are big exercise people. A term, buzzword, buzz term is Muscle confusion. Your muscles don't have brains. You can't confuse them. But that's what all those guys are pitching out there. What they're saying is, and it's true, your muscles adapt to certain exercises over time. And so you don't get the benefit from them. So if you continue to do the same thing over time, your results will plateau. And so you need to do something different. You either need to do new exercises or you can do the same ones with increased load, more weight, or more intensity if you want to see results. Bigger, stronger, faster. And the same thing is true spiritually. We all adapt to our routine. It's, it's who we are as people. It's what we do. Some of you have read the same translation of the Bible for, for 25 years. And on one hand, that's admirable. That's good. On another hand, it's, you've already, you're probably on autopilot half the time. You already know what the next word is going to be. It could very well be spiritual muscle confusion for you is as simple as buying a different translation that will require you to think When you read, that simple. Maybe going on a short-term mission trip if you've never done that. That's spiritual muscle confusion. You will be using different spiritual muscles than you do in your job. Even if you hopefully see yourself as a missionary at work, when you see yourself, when you're in another country, that's a whole different world, literally and spiritually for you. Serve in a different area. Maybe you want to serve with the kids. Do something up there with them. If you can't teach it to a four or five-year-old, you may not really know it in your heart. It's true. If you can't reduce, if you can't simplify what you're saying to words a kid can understand, then you might just be repeating jargon. It may be an opportunity for you. If you you tend to be someone who's boisterous in worship, what if next week you say, I'm not going to say anything? Quiet. I'm just going to meditate on these words. Just look for different ways of, again, kind of resetting your your spiritual muscles, giving God a chance to come at you in a different way. We don't want to develop that. Focus is good. We don't want to develop that tunnel vision where unless God is doing this one very narrow thing that we we miss who he is and what he's doing. So now on the way to Jericho, 35, 
As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. We know from Mark's version of this story, the blind man's name is Bartimaeus. When Bartimaeus heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked Bartimaeus and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, Bartimaeus received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. So Jesus is on the way to Jericho. It's about 17 miles east of Jerusalem. So it's like here to Atlanta. Bartimaeus, blind man begging, is outside the city. I'm thinking there's one road that goes in and out. And I think Bartimaeus is out there because that's where the people want him to be. So he's blind. The only way he can put food on the table is if people are generous to him, if people give to him. And so as someone who can't see, the only way he can get anybody's attention is to yell. And so you can imagine, like, up here on the square or your neighborhood, wherever you kind of live your life, you think about if there was someone who every day was sitting at the corner hollering at everybody who came by. That would get annoying over time. And I think what the people did is say, listen, let's just put them outside. And if there are any visitors who happen to be visiting our city coming through, well, he can grab them. And it allows the rest of us to kind of have some peace and quiet during our day where we don't have to either try to avoid him or tiptoe past him so he doesn't hear us. We don't have to deal with him. And so Bartimaeus, that's just what I think may not be true. So Bartimaeus is outside and Jesus has a crowd. There's a thousands of people coming with him so it'd be easy for him to pick up on the commotion and he wants to know who's coming and somebody says jesus of nazareth bartimaeus must have some prior knowledge of him because he knows enough to think hey this guy can probably help me and so he he starts hollering have mercy on me and you imagine again crowds of, of thousands like you've been in those situations before not quiet Bartimaeus has no idea when Jesus is passing or where he is in the crowd, but somehow he's yelling loud enough to get Jesus' attention. And Bartimaeus can't see physically, but he's the only person in Luke who ever calls Jesus the son of David. That's a, a messianic term. It ties back into Isaiah. It's very insightful. Nobody else we see in Luke grabs onto that. So Bartimaeus can't see, but he can see. And he says, I think Jesus grabs onto that, whoa, he recognizes something about me. Son of David, again, was a messianic term. It ties back to what we looked at over Advent, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, all of that, that, that idea, the Messiah as a king. And Bartimaeus is saying, he's coming. And so Jesus stops and everybody's trying to shush him. And I'm trying to, again, like, do you try to shush somebody in a parade? There's thousands of people. It's not a library. I'm trying to figure out what, why are they upset? It's not because this is a reverent moment. It, I think it's because they don't think Bartimaeus is worth Jesus' time. Remember, blindness, most of these kind of long-term conditions were conventionally thought to be tied to sin. So if Bartimaeus is blind, it's God's punishment on, either, on him for either his sins or his parents' sins. So he's, he's not in the club. It's another reason why he's outside of the city. He's not part of the team. He's not in the family. God is punishing him for either something he did or something his parents did. And I think the guys are going, someone like that doesn't need to interact. He doesn't need to, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's got some big things going on and he doesn't need to take time 
for somebody like Bartimaeus. So they're trying to get him to be quiet. And Bartimaeus just keeps on yelling. And Jesus responds to that faith. This, this thing in Bartimaeus that says, I don't care what y'all say. I'm not going to let this guy get by. He can ignore me if he wants. He can keep on going. But he's going to notice me. And Jesus notices him. What do you want? I want to see. And then Bartimaeus is healed. And, then, and Bartimaeus gets up and begins to follow Jesus. And everybody praises the Lord. Verse 19, or excuse me, chapter 19, Jesus actually gets to Jericho. Jesus enters Jericho. He was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because the man, this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So now Jesus has entered Jericho and there's a guy named Zacchaeus who lives there. And we know four things about him. He's a chief tax collector. So think of him like a district manager. He's got these other tax collectors who work for him. We know he's rich. We know he's short. And we know nobody likes him. So that's Zacchaeus. Remember last week when we talked about tax collectors, we said they were despised, they were seen as traitors, they were greedy, they were cheats, dishonest, all of those things. That's Zacchaeus, and he's the head one in their area. He's short, he wants to, again, thousands of people, he can't see Jesus, and so he climbs up a tree in order to see him. A tree like that. So you think about that, men. I want you to think back when the last time you climbed a tree was not to get into a deer stand, like just legitimately climbed a tree. You're having to go back a long way for most of you. That's not something that we tend to do. Guys, adults don't really climb trees. Rich and powerful adults don't really climb trees ever. But Zacchaeus does that. That shows how much he wants to see Jesus. We can read that and think, oh, he's just curious. Mild curiosity. No, deep desire. That same word, Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus, that Jesus then used, I came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus, even as Jesus is seeking Zacchaeus. He climbs up in this tree, and that would stand out for most of us if we saw a grown man in a tree. And he notices him, and then he invites himself, Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. I'm going to come to your house. And everybody starts grumbling. They're upset. Remember, Zacchaeus, he's nobody's favorite guy. They're probably thinking, you're going to go eat with him. He just cheated me last week. He's been taking money from us for years, allowing these, his employees to do the same. Whatever they can get. Why in the world would you go eat with a guy like that? So Jesus goes to his house, and at some point, Zacchaeus, it, it doesn't seem to be prompted. Jesus doesn't ask a question. It seems to be spontaneous. Zacchaeus says, you know what, I'm going to give away half of what I've got. And if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay back four times. That's what the, that was the Old Testament standard. If you stole somebody's lamb, then you had to give them four back. So that's the idea. I'm going to pay back four times whatever I've cheated or stolen from somebody. 
and Jesus' response is, this guy's now not just racially a child of Abraham or son of Abraham. Now he spiritually is a son of Abraham as well. This is a picture of what I came to do. I came to find guys like this. So I'm gonna, we're going to step over here. This is a tangent, a bit of a digression. Why Zacchaeus? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Nobody, only Luke has Zacchaeus. Matthew and Mark have the story of Bartimaeus, and they just blow past Jericho. He goes straight from Bartimaeus into Jerusalem. Why does Luke alone put this in here? Luke spends more time talking about money than anybody else, more than Matthew, more than Mark, more than John. And usually he's talking about money as an obstacle to to faith, money as an obstacle to developing a true relationship with Jesus. If you remember last week, we talked about the rich young ruler and how sad that story was. You've got this guy. He's a leader of the synagogue. He's very righteous. He says, I've kept the command since I was a boy. He goes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He recognizes Jesus as a spiritual authority. He asks the right question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response after he says, keep all the commandments, and the guy says, yeah, I've done that, is you need to sell everything and follow me. And then one of the saddest verses in the New Testament, the guy walks away sad because he has great wealth. And Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven or enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples go, what, what? If wealth is a sign of God's blessing, if wealth is a sign of favor, if, the, if those guys don't get in, then who gets in? And Jesus says with man this is impossible, or what's impossible with people is possible with God. I think Luke put Zacchaeus in to redeem the rich. Remember we said we're all rich. By any standards, globally or historically, everybody in this room is rich. If you've got more than one pair of shoes, then you're rich. And so what he's saying to us, like last week we go, oh, what do we do? We're all rich. Are we supposed to sell everything? He never tells anybody else to do that. What, what do we do? And then I think Luke puts Zacchaeus in, and I think Jesus interacts with him, and it's, they're, they're right next to each other. So we can look at both of those and say, you know what? It is impossible, but all, it's impossible for anybody to enter the kingdom of God apart from his grace. And we see that here with Zacchaeus, and, and you have a nice contrast between those two. You have the rich young ruler. So this guy who everybody says, if anybody gets in, it's him. He's a leader of the synagogue. He's rich, so he's blessed by God, and he's kept all of the commands since he was a boy. Then over here we have Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector, who's rich as well, but most likely from stealing from people and probably hadn't even kept the command since yesterday. Those are my two options. Everybody goes, rich young ruler gets in, Zacchaeus goes to H-E double hockey sticks, and that's not what happens. The rich young ruler walks away, and Zacchaeus responds positively. It's, he comes to seek and save the lost, and there's, no, there's not a formula for that. There's nobody who's too far gone. There's nobody who's outside the scope of his grace. I think that's why Zacchaeus is there, is to say to all of us who are rich, you, there's, still, there's opportunity here. We can all respond. He never said, why didn't he ever ask Zacchaeus to sell everything? Because I think the heart of Zacchaeus that says, I'm going to give away half of what I've gotten without being asked to do anything. I'm going to pay back anybody I've cheated times four without being asked to do anything. That heart says, my money's not my God. I don't, it, I own it. It does not own me. And the fact that he was willing to do those things spontaneously means Jesus never has to say sell everything. 
And the fact that the rich young ruler walks away said that was, that was the issue for him. That was the God, the idol in his life that he was not willing to walk away from. So for us, as people who are rich, I think that the fundamental question is just simply, is money in your pocket or are you in its pocket? And all you have to do is say, what am I doing with it? If you're not, if you have a job, if you have income and you're not giving somewhere, I'm not talking about giving to this church, but if you're not giving somewhere, then money probably owns you. You can give something. If you have money coming in, you can give something. I can't give much. Nobody cares. We'll look in a few weeks at the story of this lady who gives two pennies. And Jesus said, her two pennies are worth more than these guys throwing in $10,000. And that only works in the kingdom of God. That math doesn't add up anywhere else, but it does for him. So this is not about the size of your bank account or the size of the check that you write. I don't even care where you write it. It's just the idea that says money is something that God has given me, and it's a tool that I use to put food on the table and a roof over my head to bless my family and to serve other people. That's what I'm doing with it. And then you kind of work out all of those details. But if you're keeping all of it, then it probably has a hold on you versus you having a hold on it. Okay, so Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus. You see lots of things that are the same about them. Before we get to that, let me read you this. Will you go back, Josh? Sorry, I jumped ahead. So, this is what Jesus says at the very beginning of his public ministry. This is his job description. He's saying, here's what I'm about to do. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, release the oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, And then he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's before he's done anything. So that's at the very beginning. So what I want you thinking about is Jesus, like he's calling his own shot. Here's what I'm coming to do. And then he goes about and spends three years doing that. And then we close with Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus. And I think that's Luke putting a bow on it. It's a bookend. Here's three years later. Here's tangibly, literally, him giving sight to the blind. Here is him setting someone free, one guy who's burdened by this idea that his sin has caused him to not be able to see, another guy who's burdened by his job as a tax collector, by the fact that nobody likes him, and by all of this wealth. Jesus sets him free. He preaches good news to the poor, both the spiritually poor Zacchaeus and to the financially poor Bartimaeus. I think what you have in those two stories, back to back, is Jesus saying, I did it. This is it. I've got one week. He's got eight, nine days left of his life. And I think what he's saying is everything that I said I was going to do three years ago, I just did it. And here are two examples for you as I close. It's his closing statement publicly. He still does some things in Jerusalem, but this is, really, this is the last miracle he performs, healing Bartimaeus. And this is really his last kind of public act until he gets, uh, except for the last week of his life. And so I think that's what you have. And what I want you to take away is that he's faithful. The things that he said he would do, he actually did. Now, as we read those stories, you probably saw lots of parallels between Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus. There's a, they're, they're very similar in a lot of ways. Both of these guys are outcasts. Bartimaeus is an outcast because he can't see, and so people think he's a sinner cursed by God. Zacchaeus is an outcast because he's a tax collector and he's probably a jerk. Um, they both have to overcome personal obstacles. I want you to grab onto that. So these are things that are, I don't know how to say it, they're intrinsic to who they are. Bartimaeus is blind. That's not external. That's, he can't see. Zacchaeus is short. That's a part of who he is. And they both have to overcome those obstacles in order to see Jesus. And that's something I want you to grab onto. Sometimes we say, 
I'm just not made that way. That's just not who I am. That very well may be true. I don't want you to use those personal obstacles as a reason or as an excuse to, um, to avoid pressing in to Jesus or to avoid trying to, to see him. You most likely at some point will have to overcome some personal obstacles, not things that are externally uh, imposed upon you. You'll have to step outside of your personality maybe a little bit or something like that in order to engage Jesus. They both have to push through external resistance. That's crowds for both of them. They have to get through all these people. Um, Jesus notices their faith. They press through external resistance. They've overcome these personal obstacles, and Jesus sees it. He sees Zacchaeus in the tree, and he notices Bartimaeus among a crowd of thousands and thousands of people. He's able to zero in on the faith in both of those guys. They respond to his invitation. Bartimaeus says, I want to see. Zacchaeus says, come on over to my house. Both of them, their lives are changed. Zacchaeus can see and he begins to follow Jesus. Bartimaeus' relationship with his money, with his possessions, changes radically after encountering Jesus. And both of them are saved. That word healed is the same word as the word saved. And we see Bartimaeus, or excuse me, Zacchaeus has this word of salvation pronounced over him. So we're going to close with this, that top question. What do you want? This morning, neither Zacchaeus nor Bartimaeus was willing to let Jesus pass by without at least making an effort. He could have kept going. They didn't know. There were no guarantees for them. Jesus could have looked at Bartimaeus and said, son, you're a sinner. You got what you deserve. I'm going to keep walking. Jesus could have looked at Zacchaeus and said, you're a rotten human being. I don't don't want anything to do with you. Fall out of the tree. He could there's risk on both of those guys' parts. They didn't know. But they were, there was desire there for them to interact. Say, he may ignore me, but he's gonna, he can pass me by, but he's going to notice. There's that idea of the, the lady who's been bleeding for uh, 12 years and she's tugging on Jesus' robe. That idea is that I'm, he's got something for me. And I'm going to put myself in a position to receive. Some of us don't think that way. We say, well, I've got everything I need. I'm not asking what you need. I'm asking what you want. Not what would be nice. I'm asking for deep desire. Again, it may not be a need. We can get hung up on that word. Bartimaeus didn't need to see. He'd been blind his whole life. It wasn't going to kill him to continue to be blind. It was deep desire for him. What is that for you? If you have any sense of... Jesus being fit, tangibly present or, or actually present among us. That idea of two and three gathering and he's in our midst. If that means anything to you, can you say, Jesus is here this morning and I'm not going to let him go. I'm not gonna, he may choose to t- tell me no. He may choose to say, not right now. But he's going to notice me. He's going to know what I want from him. Whether I get it or not is up to him, but I'm going to make my desire known. We're going to spend a couple of minutes in prayer. I want you to follow me if you will. Ministry teams, if you guys would come forward. I want you in your heart. I'm just going to, actually, I'm just going to pray for you so you can just open your heart to this if you're willing to do so. God, I pray for the men and the women in this room. First, that we would know our own desires. Some of us, we, just don't, know, we don't even know what we want. If you physically, visibly walked into the room and you, Jesus singled you out 
and he said, what do you want? What would you say? And you can't say world peace. What would you say for you personally? If you don't know, it could very well be that you're just 100% content. I, I would probably press on you and say, the reason you don't know is probably because you're, you're the one sitting on the front seat of that tandem bike. You've never even considered what would I ask him to do. What you're thinking about are just things that you can do and things that you can control. So assume with me this morning, he's in the room. And he's looking for faith. I think it's Second Chronicles, maybe 22, it might be 16, I can't remember. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, looking for those. Looking to strongly support those whose hearts are fully his. He's looking around the room. He's not judging. He's not grading. He's just looking for faith. Who wants something and thinks I can deliver? Who's willing to trust me with a deep desire? And the great thing is, he doesn't just, it's not just one person. It's not, there's not only one Bartimaeus in the room. There can be 200. As many who raise their hand. That's how many he responds to so this morning, is, he's in the room and he looks at you and he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you say back? I want you to grab onto that this morning. God, I pray for each of us. One, that we would know those deep desires of our heart. Most of those desires are things that you've put there. And we would not be scared by that. But we would be willing to dream big dreams with you beyond what we can ask, beyond what we can imagine, and absolutely beyond what we can control and make happen in our own strength. God, my second prayer is that you would meet people in that desire today, that you would open eyes and reconcile relationships and give direction and all of the different things that people are looking for, take care of debt, all of the things. God, would you meet people here? This morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.